Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 10 to start this morning. Isaiah chapter 10, where we have a summary account given of God's dealings with the Assyrians that is very useful in remembering this nation and its role in the history of the world and in its role in Israel's history and how God viewed them. As we think of God's vengeance and judgment, we live such pampered lives, it's hard for us to appreciate it. Do we, do we bless and love the God of heaven who has delivered His people from such vengeance? If you go back to Abraham and think of the kings that were confederate and came out of Mesopotamia and took captive Abraham's nephew Lot, and how the Lord strengthened Abraham to take his 318 trained servants and a couple confederates of his own, and to defeat those kings, and to recover every single thing they had taken. God blessed them, and it is called in the Bible, the slaughter of the kings. Because Abraham, with his trained servants, slaughtered them. We can come forward and remember our brothers in Egypt, who were there by God's choice. And there in that place, they were persecuted with a a king that had said, Who is the Lord? And they were forced into hard labor, and their sigh came up to God by reason of their bondage. And yet the Lord delivered them and overthrew the nation of Egypt and slaughtered them. And they were dead corpses, waterlogged corpses, on the shore of the Red Sea at the end of that event. And we come forward through the Bible and we see more and more of God's judgment upon the wicked. We are considering the book of Nahum, one of two books in the Bible that deal with the city of Nineveh. Jonah was sent there and preached to them. They repented temporarily. God put off His wrath on them for 150 years until they were destroyed. And Nahum came with that comforting message to Israel that Assyria, the great enemy of Israel and Judah, would indeed be destroyed. It's part of the Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So we study all the Bible. And so while this book may appear to be an obscure prophecy, it isn't really. It's about one of the great cities and empires of world history and how the Lord dealt with them. And He tore them apart and destroyed them so thoroughly that until 150 years ago, skeptics mocked the Bible as referring to an empire that was purely mythical. Until 1820 to 1860, men began to dig into the mounds across the Tigris River from the current city of Mosul, Iraq. And there, lo and behold, they found a city that measured the size of the city described in Jonah, three days' journey around it, with a population, according to the book of Jonah, of 120,000, five years of age and under. If that's when you think children learn their left hand from their right hand. They found it. They found a library with 20,000 clay tablets. And those clay tablets referenced about ten kings of Israel and about seven kings of Judah and transactions that had occurred that match up with the Bible. Now, you're not a bit surprised. Nor do we need such information to make our faith. It just causes the righteous to rejoice. 
The purpose of prophecy is so that when it takes place, the righteous can rejoice, this event is the hand of God because He told us it was going to happen in advance. And yet, we're so far removed from the events of 600 B.C. We're removed by 2,600 years. We have to rely on some of these things to find out exactly how some of Nahum's sentences were fulfilled. And indeed, they were fulfilled. What a comforting message. If you look at the map I sent you, and the map is important to give you a perspective on where these places are that God tells us about in the Bible. You can see where Nineveh is on the Tigris River. You can see where Babylon was. You can see Samaria. You can see Judah and how it was surrounded by the Assyrian Empire. You can see Thebes. And we're going to need to know Thebes as we come into Nahum chapter 3. You can see that Judah was surrounded and that King Hezekiah had witnessed the besieging of Samaria by the Assyrians. It lasted three years. The fourth, the fifth, and the sixth years of King Hezekiah, he watched the Assyrians surround the city of Samaria, besiege it until its people were starving, and he took them captive and deported them into all nations and brought men from those nations and put them in the cities of Samaria and Israel. That would have been intimidating to the king Hezekiah. So that when Sennacherib came toward him, he tried to buy him off in the weakness of his faith. Because if they had done it to the people of God in Israel, capital Samaria, then they could do it possibly to us here in Jerusalem. And he was fearful, but the God of heaven sent him a message that he had despised the Assyrians, and his chastening was over against Judah, and he would destroy this enemy. And it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful history to read and see how Hezekiah was delivered, how loud the mouth was of Rabshakeh, the messenger of the king Sennacherib, and how King Hezekiah put the letter before the Lord and said, look at what they're saying about you. Are you going to let this stand? And the Lord Jehovah said he would not let it stand And they did not have to draw a sword in that battle. The angel of the Lord slew 185,000 of the Assyrians. Sennacherib went home in shame, went into the house of Nisroch, his idol god, and there tried to seek some sign, some form of comfort for his great military loss. And while he's there worshiping, his sons come in and kill him. Perfect justice for such a wicked king. And the Lord God of heaven did it all. Let's read about that king. Isaiah chapter 10. This is an important summary of a number of chapters of the Bible and historical events. You know, there's seven kings of Assyria listed in the Old Testament. As they pummeled Israel and fought with them for a long period of time. But here we have God's words to them. Isaiah 10 and verse 5. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against and hit a hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil 
and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit, he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Calno as Carchemish? Is not Hamath as Arpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? As my hand hath formed the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Wherefore it shall come to pass, that when the Lord hath performed His whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he saith, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put them down, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, And as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up. Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood. Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire, and the light of Israel shall be for a flame, for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body, and they shall be as when a standard-bearer fainteth. And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few, that a child may write them. There we have a summary of God's dealings with the king of Assyria and the Assyrians. Notice, I have raised up the Assyrians to be a rod in my hand. God used the great empire of the Assyrians simply as a chastening rod in his hand to punish the wicked, especially the wicked of his own people. In verse 6, when he describes a hypocritical nation, he's describing the nation of Israel and Judah, how that he sent Assyria against them to chasten them. Now, the king didn't ever think that he was doing anything like chastening them. Old King Sennacherib, he wasn't out to do the will of God. He was out to do the will of Sennacherib. He thought for sure that he was just going to add to his empire. This is where we understand the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. God is accomplishing His secret will through the violence of a man named Sennacherib. He didn't know he was keeping the will of God, but he was indeed. He goes on and boasts in verses in verse 8, that his princes, his tributary princes, were actually kings of minor nations that were subject to him. 
He mentions in verse 9, Look at these cities I've taken. Aren't they all equal to me? Whether great or small, I can defeat any city that I set my mind to defeat. He says in verses 10 and 11, All the idols of other cities that I have met with, more glorious than the idols of Samaria and Jerusalem, were not enough to stop me. There's nothing in Samaria or Jerusalem that will stop me. Samaria couldn't stop me. Judah won't stop me. And that's how haughty he was when he came and approached the city walls of Jerusalem with the messenger Rabshakeh, who in, by a speech of intimidation tried to get the king Hezekiah to forfeit the city and turn it over to the Assyrians, which he did not do. Verse 12 tells us that when the Lord had performed His whole work, when God was done with His chastening of Israel and Jerusalem, then He would punish the fruit of the stout heart of that king of Assyria who thought himself so great when his greatness was by the blessing of God to be a chastening rod. Because this man, and here's his stout heart in verses 13 through 14, he says, I am wise, I am strong, I am prudent, I'm able to remove the bounds of nations that have existed for a long time I pick up their riches and I defeat kings like a maiden goes out to pick up eggs. And no one peeps when I do it. No one is able to raise any resistance against me whatsoever. This is the haughty speech of the king Sennacherib of the Assyrian Empire as he approached Jerusalem. We know that this is the precise timing of this particular passage because he says he has already taken Samaria in verse 11, and now he's going to take Jerusalem. So we know that is between the 6th year of Hezekiah and the 14th year of Hezekiah because it was in the 14th year that Sennacherib came and surrounded the city. The Lord says in verse 15, Are you kidding me? What are you talking about? You're wise? You're strong? You're prudent? I've been using you like a man uses an axe. You're nothing but a piece of wood in my hands. And I'm the one moving you. That's the God of heaven. And that's how we should view history. And you know, nothing's changed since the Assyrian Empire. The Lord dashes nations against nations. He raises up kings and He puts kings down. It isn't where you read in the pages of history. It's God that raises up nations. And it's God that puts them back down. Whether you think of the Second World War, or the First World War, or, or Napoleon's efforts in Europe, all of them were the hand of God scourging the nations and then defeating the one He had used as the scourge. Where are the Huns today? Where is Genghis Khan? The Mongolians are the joke of the world. They're so backward, they're a third world nation in comparison to what they once were because God destroyed them. He gave them a period of time to destroy others and then He put them down. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ. He sits at the right hand of God, ruling over the nations with a rod of iron, dashing them in pieces. And we put our trust in Him. Verse 16, Therefore, because of everything that went before that in the 11 verses from 5 through 15, the Lord is going to send leanness among His fat ones and is going to burn Him up and consume Him so that a child's going to be able to write and do the math on His army. There's not going to be many left. 
because 185,000 were dead corpses. Praise the God of heaven. This is the prophecy about Assyria. There's many statements like this in the Bible, whether it's the book of Zephaniah, whether it's Ezekiel, whether it's Jeremiah, whether it's Nahum the prophet, whether it's the historical books of Kings and Chronicles. We have much about Assyria, but the Lord put an end to them. And until 150 years ago, they couldn't even be found. And they've been found, and we can rejoice in the findings, because all they do is confirm Scripture. Let's turn to that little book of Nahum and consider the second chapter. Can we get a lesson out of the little obscure minor prophet of Nahum? Though your circumstances at times may appear overwhelmingly difficult, as they did to Hezekiah, God can deliver you. Amen. That's a comforting message from the book. Another lesson. The God of heaven will surely judge all cruelty, hatred, malice, and violence in the earth. Verily, there is a God that judgeth in the earth. And though Assyria got away with their violence for a long time, that time came to an end and they were judged. There is no enemy a child of God should fear. God will deliver him and destroy his enemies. America has been the beauty of the whole earth for a couple of hundred years. But God will strip her and destroy her as we read in Psalm 9, Wednesday night and this morning. There is no difference in the justice of God to overlook America. He has overlooked it so far for the sake of the righteous that are in it. And we want to pray for our nation, the peace of it, that our children and children's children can enjoy that peace until the Lord comes. That's a lesson. America will be judged and it will be a severe judgment. Because if there's any nation that has committed spiritual adultery, it wasn't Assyria, it's America. Assyria didn't even know the God of heaven like we do and have as a nation. If Nineveh was judged so severely for their spiritual adultery, for giving glory for the the splendor and riches of their kingdom to idols, how much shall we be judged if we commit spiritual adultery? So there's a lesson about spiritual adultery from the book of Nahum. And we want to remember that. The Bible says in James 4, 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Now what kind of adultery is he talking about there? He is not writing to a church of wife swappers. He is writing to a church of world friends. Worldly friends. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, we should learn from the severe judgments we're about to read that we better be careful in being loyal and loving the Lord our God with all our hearts and living for Him every day and not being enamored, infatuated, or turned away by the things of this life. We saw in verse 15 of chapter 1, Nahum chapter 1 and verse 15, the second half, O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee, he is utterly cut off. When God destroys our enemies and delivers us from trouble, what should that do? cause us to relax and think that everything is fine between us and the Lord? Or should the goodness of God lead us to repentance and greater worship? 
it should lead us to greater worship. So the lesson we want from the book of Nahum is, let us grab greater zeal in our love of God, in our service to Him, in our hearts, in our families, on the job, and throughout our lives. Because of that verse right there. That's a lesson we can get. Another lesson. The prophecies and history of the Bible and the world are for lessons in righteousness. Do you know that we're going to get in chapter 3 to verse 8, where God tells Nineveh about a city in Egypt called No. You Ninevites. No did not escape. Why do you think you're going to escape? As it is said, those that forget history are doomed to repeat it. And guess what? Nineveh repeated it. They had overthrown Thebes in Egypt, the greatest city of the Egyptian empire, and then Nineveh was overthrown the same way, even though there was a warning in the historical event that impregnable cities are not impregnable. Another lesson. Your deliverance from sin, death, the devil, and hell is more glorious and worthy of more praise than anything we're going to see in Nahum 1, 2, and 3. Yet it was a great and glorious defeat of the enemies of God in that city. Nahum chapter 2. The first verse introduces the enemy that's coming by a singular male pronoun. He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition. Watch the way. Make thy loins strong. Fortify thy power mightily. This is verse 1 of chapter 2. The Lord is in His holy temple, and He is through chastening Israel. He's through chastening Judah. And now it's time to raise up enemies that are going to overthrow Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. And brethren, we first read about Assyria in Genesis 2. We first read about Nineveh in Genesis 10. Nineveh was an ancient city, and it was a great city. As Jonah told us, it took three days to walk around that city. Probably 60 miles in circumference. But the Lord's about to overthrow it. And Judah and the Jews, those surrounded by that empire that stretched from Egypt to Afghanistan and Pakistan, was about to be overthrown by its own set of enemies. And those enemies were the Chaldeans and the Medes that came in the early 600 B.C.s and overthrew this city. And God here describes that destruction. He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. This army did not sneak in. Nineveh was not overthrown by subtlety or by political conspiracy. It was overthrown by an army that came up in their face. They were terrified of them. They hid. They tried to gather strength. And yet they were overthrown. History tells us that 400,000 were in the combined army, Confederate army, of the Medes and the Chaldeans and came up against this city in their face. Just like they had done to so many others, so the armies that God raised up came against the Ninevites. And so the second half of the verse is a mockery. Keep the munition. Munitions are military fortifications or weapons. Go ahead and keep them. Watch the way. Set your guards. Have your spies out. Send your reconnaissance units. It's all to no avail. Make thy loins strong. Give your rousing speeches. 
Try to gird your loins up to be strong for this battle. Fortify thy power mightily. It's all in vain, because the God of heaven is behind the other army for a change. The God of heaven had been with the Assyrian army, and so they had conquered the known world. But now God was with their enemies. And so it doesn't matter how vigil and careful they were in preparing for the onslaught, they were going down. He that dasheth in pieces is come. Now in verse 2, there's a little parenthesis explaining why the great reversal of fortune for Assyria. For the Lord hath turned away the excellent sea of Jacob as the excellent sea of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. Verse 2 is like a parenthesis. It's an explanation as to why Assyria is now going to be overthrown. We, we just read it in Isaiah 10, but we're getting it here in Nahum. It's the same lesson. It's the same God that wrote both books, both chapters and both words. God was through with His punishment of Judah and Israel. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. The people of God in the land of Canaan were the beauty of the earth in the sight of God. Those cities, those people, their worship of Him was beautiful in His sight. It was the excellency of a holy nation that was God's people. He turned away that excellency. He, he brought a foreign army into that land that destroyed their cities, took them captive, took the fenced cities of Judah. He turned away their excellency. They were no longer excellent. He turned His back on them for a period of time. But He was through doing that. The emptiers, the Assyrians, had come and emptied them out. They had taken all the spoil of Samaria and Israel and taken the people themselves and deported them. They had marred the vine branches of the vine that God had planted in the land of Canaan, meaning the nation of Israel. So we have a parenthesis here explaining why there is now this great reversal. Assyria had been so powerful, they're, no, they're not powerful any longer because God was through using them, just as we read in Isaiah 10, and now it's time for them to be destroyed. This is how we know the God of the Bible. You do not know the God of the Bible by looking at trees. You know the God of the Bible. Oh, there's a benefit from looking at trees from time to time, but it doesn't even compare to the measure of looking at His Word and reading His precious words. The inspired words that describe how the Lord executes judgment. The Lord is known by the judgment which He executeth. And so we read these words. And this is a prophet encouraging the Jews stirring up the heart of Hezekiah and the other Jews and telling, we don't know how broad this message went. We don't know if Nahum was read in the city of Assyria. It would, it would have been seditious to have printed that in the city of, of Nineveh, I mean. But here are comforting words that describe the God of heaven overthrowing the Assyrians. In verse 3, we return to the subject of verse 1. Verse 2 was a parenthesis explaining why God is against Assyria now. And we have a he that starts out chapter 2, and that is the armies that are coming against Nineveh. Verse 3, The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. 
They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like lightnings. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. Here are three verses describing the combined army of the Chaldeans or Babylonians and the Medes coming to destroy the city of Nineveh. And it's describing them in glorious, powerful terms about this approaching army. In verse 3, the color of their uniforms and shields. Why would they paint them red? Why would they make them scarlet? This is before they got to the battle. This is on their approach. Because red was often used as an intimidating color and to cover the sign, to cover any sign of wounds. If you were bleeding, it didn't show up. So there was less fear as you looked around and didn't see whether any of your fellow compatriots were bleeding or not. The chariots with flaming torches. You wanted a torch in your chariot when you entered the city of Nineveh because while you were slashing and killing men as you approached them, you were also setting fire to everything you could get your hands on. And so the Lord is describing this army that's coming in chariots with torches in the day of His preparation. And the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. All the straight, light, hard, good wood of fir trees would be shaken in all the surrounding districts of Nineveh as those trees were cut down to use against the city. Spears, bulwarks, ramps to get up over that wall. It was common in battles in this time in the world that all the trees for miles in every direction would have been removed because they were used in the assault on a city to get up over its walls. And so the fir trees shall be terribly shaken as they're cut and chopped to the ground and used. The chariots shall rage in the streets. This is not a choreographed parade in the city of Babylon. This is an assault across open fields to get at the city of Nineveh before they can be attacked and to gain entry to the city. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. That's the collide and bounce against each other as they're racing toward the city. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. If it was at night, can you imagine chariots racing across the open ground with torches in them? And if they were in the city streets, the, the hoofs of the of the the horses and the wheels of the chariots striking sparks out. But here the prophet is describing this army approaching in with a, a force of chariots to come against the city. For those of you that have read some of the prophetic novels written by futurists, you have encountered verse 4 before. I just want to throw this in. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. Those are your cars and SUVs. That's America. Those are American highways. That is what men will do with the Bible when they recognize no context. Go in and find, this is, you know, this is Rexella and Jack at work. Go in and find a verse and describe this as American highways having collisions, jostles, jostling against one another, and with their headlights and taillights. If you've ever been in an airplane and looked down on a city and seen the white lights coming towards you, the red lights go. This is the overthrow of Nineveh. You know what the most important words in this whole book are? The first four. The burden of Nineveh. It has nothing to do with American highways. 
Not anything, not indirectly, not by principle, nothing. It's the burden of Nineveh. And so we stick with the context. He mentions Nineveh in chapter 2 and verse 8. He mentions the word Nineveh in chapter 3 and verse 7. He never leaves his subject. It's one subject. The overthrow of the great city enemy of the nation of Israel and Judah. Verse 5. He shall recount his worthies. This he is the first he from the chapter. The first word of chapter 2. This is the enemies that are going to dash in pieces the Ninevites. He shall recount his worthies. That's to muster his captains and to give them their orders. That's what the word recount means. To give out the details and the orders of the attack. They shall stumble in their walk. How is this assaulting force stumbling? Just keep reading. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. Now, if you read that verse without the previous two, you might think this is describing the king of Nineveh gathering a defense. But no, we are reading this in positive terms about the great army that's coming against the city. Men stumble when they walk, when they're carrying the heavy load that they have to bring up to the city wall to make an assault on it. They're racing toward the wall, but they're carrying battering rams, they're carrying ladders and other things to get up over that wall. And the defense described here is what every force had to have when they assaulted a wall, and that was to build something over their heads because oil and great boulders were thrown down from that wall and arrows were shot down to destroy them because they were in such a vulnerable position. This isn't Nineveh. Nineveh had its defenses prepared way in advance of the assault. This is a defense that's thrown up at the last minute as they race to the wall to get into this city. And it's the prophet describing in military detail the assault on the city of Nineveh. Verse 6, The gates of the rivers shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. And Huzab shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maids shall lead her as with the voice of doves, tabbering upon their breasts. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water. Yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. Here is a further description of the overthrow of Nineveh. Here's one. Here's an, uh, an important point about Bible prophecy. The Bible tells us in, a, in several chapters in Isaiah, and especially by our Lord's words in the Gospel of John, that prophecy is written so that when it is fulfilled, you know that it was God that told you in advance. Right. When these things come to pass, you will know that I told you of them. God in Isaiah often compared himself to the other gods and said, is there any other God? that can declare future things in the detail I can, and then they come to pass? There is no God. Only the God of the Bible can do that. Our problem in understanding every phrase of every prophecy is we don't know enough about the fulfillment. But as we learn, you know, the Jews certainly would have known, every Jew that had the book of Nahum in their hands they would have been reading about the conquest of Nineveh for the couple years that it was under siege. 
They would have read about it. It would have been in the papers. The messengers would have reported that Nineveh was falling and this book would have been fulfilled and caused great joy. All we can do is the best we can. In some of the phrases, we won't even know the fulfillment. And it's part of the beauty of the Bible. It is an inexhaustible library to study the things God has revealed there. The gates of the rivers shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. We don't know exactly what those words mean, but I'll tell you this. The historians that describe the overthrow of Nineveh say that after a couple years of that city being besieged, the Nile River rose. And they had the Nile River channeled all around the city to fill huge moats with water to try to keep assaulting soldiers away from the city. But the Nile River arose and came with a flash flood and tore down two and a half miles of the city wall that was on the... Did I say the Nile? I meant the Tigris River. The Tigris River. Now, that's what historians say. And there's value in that because we look here and we say, what was Nahum talking about when he said, the gates of the rivers shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved? That there was an overthrow at the end by waters taking out the city wall that allowed the assault to get inside. We don't know the details. They knew the details. We like to discover the details. The Word of God always sets our view of history. Only history that matches the Word of God do we ever accept. If history or science or anything else contradicts the Word of God, we throw it out the window. If it confirms the Word of God, we thank God for the confirmation and the fulfillment that helps us understand His words. Huzzab, we don't know who she is, but she's a woman. It could be a personification of Nineveh or it could be the queen. Because notice how she's described. Huzzab shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, pulled out of wherever she was hiding, and her maids shall lead her as with the voice of doves, tabbering upon their breasts. They would be beating their breasts, just like the Bible describes you do when you're in grief. And they're mourning like doves, because doves make a mourning sound, and they're considered to be the mourning bird in the Bible. Verse 8, But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water. Nineveh was an ancient city had stood there for a long time like a pool of water. People had got used to it. It was on the map. It had proliferated. A pool of water attracts activity. Animals, fish grow around a pool of water until they're a great multitude. And so we have here the word but. The word but starts this verse off because of the contrast that is made in this first half. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet, yet they shall flee away. Though that city was so old, had stood there so long since Genesis chapter 10, right after the Tower of Babel, though it had stood there so long and though it had grown and though everyone had got used to it being there, yet they shall flee away. The city that had stood for so long ran away. The captains would be yelling, Stand! Stand! The prophet cries out and he writes here in this verse, But none shall look back. They weren't even going to look back. They were better than Lot's wife. They wanted out of town. They knew that judgment was coming on the city of Nineveh. And though they were told to stand and try to protect their homes and the city, they ran. The God of heaven was on the other side. And he was giving success to these armies that came against Nineveh. You're an Israelite. You're a Jew. You read the little prophecy of Nahum. 
you wait for it to happen. And then you start reading the accounts that the Babylonians and the Medes have gathered together a huge force to overthrow Nineveh. And you've got your little prophet, and you're reading your little prophet for morning devotions because you're reading the newspaper every day and seeing this conquest take place. We are so far removed from danger and the threats of enemies, we can't fully appreciate a blessing like this. But we should. We should try to imagine the blessing this was. And we should gather from this. God will raise up armies. He can raise up nations to overthrow nations that have persecuted the people of God. Stand! No one would stand. They just kept running on out of town. Let's get out of here while the getting's good. This is the prophet. Verse 9. So, the Lord gives some instruction to these marauding Chaldeans and Medes. Strip the city bare. Take everything she's got. She has stolen the silver and the gold from other cities and nations. Take it back. Take ye the spoil of silver. Take the spoil of gold. For there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. That city was so rich, we're going to read in chapter 3 that she had merchants more than the number of the stars in heaven. Because it was a city so old, capital of the world empire, merchants were proliferating there, making money. And do you know how you motivate troops that are coming into a city? Whatever you can get your hands on is yours. And so the Lord is saying, take the silver, take the gold, get whatever you can get. Because they came in with a vengeance into the city of Nineveh and robbed her and then left her. And she's been mounds to the present day. And all they do now is dig down through the mud to try to find the old buildings and look at them in their destroyed state. Verse 10 Look at the condition of Nineveh. She is empty and void and waste. And the heart melteth. They have no strength in their heart. Their breath is taken away. There is no fervency in their breast. The knees smite together. And much pain is in all loins. And the faces of them all gather blackness. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, even the old lion, walked and the lions whelp and none made them afraid. The lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps and strangled for his lionesses and filled his holes with prey and his dens with raven. This is mockery. Verse 10 is a description of the condition of Nineveh when God got through with her. Three days to get around it. Such a large population, the children five and under, were 120,000. She is empty and void and waste. She is destroyed with a catastrophic judgment and there is nothing left. The heart melteth. Their passion, their love, their courage, their bravery was gone. It had melted and run away. There was nothing left in them to fight. The knees smite together. They are so scared 
because of this army that's racing into their city and destroying it. Much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. As Assyria had done this to many nations, so God now does it to them. The Lord is known by the judgment which He executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of His own hands. What He did, the Bible says in another place, God will bring down on His own pate. And so it came to pass on Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians. Verse 11, are rhetorical questions of mockery. Where is the dwelling of the lions? Hey, Assyria, you acted like you were lions for the last several hundred years. Where is the dwelling of the lions? Where is this roaring, fearless beast that turns away for none? Where are you? The mockery of God against Assyria. Where's the lion, even the old lion? You know, where's the king that walked in Nineveh as if he ruled the world? And the lions whelp his son, the prince. Where are these lions that once were so fearless and devoured the world? It's mockery. They're gone. Their hearts are full of fear. Their knees are knocking together. Their loins are in pain. And their faces are black. As we just read from verse 10. Verse 12 describes what those lions were like that once inhabited Nineveh. The lion did tear in pieces. Enough for his whelps and strangled for his lionesses and filled his holes with prey and his dens with raven. Here, this is word, this, these are word pictures. The king of Assyria would take his army out, go plunder a nation, bring back all the prey and stuff it into Nineveh. Like a lion goes out, eats as much as he can possibly gorge on, and stuffs the rest into a hiding place. This is a, this is a word picture of what the king of Assyria was like and what the Ninevites were like. Verse 13 is an explanation for what has happened. Here's the cause. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions. And I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. Are there going to be any more rabshackies going out into the world, blaspheming the God of heaven? No messengers to be heard again. No more prey taken by the Assyrian Empire, because God ended their plundering of the nations. I'll burn her chariots, and the sword's going to devour the young lions that once inhabited that city of Nineveh. The whole key, it's the whole key, whether it's against a nation or against a man. Behold, I am against thee. Behold, I am against thee. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Behold, I am against thee. Now, brethren, we have to learn a lesson from this. We can learn the lessons that America can be overthrown as easily as Nineveh. If you think America is greater than the Assyrian Empire, you're wrong. Listen, we have trouble with little nations like Iraq. We have trouble with little nations like Vietnam and Korea. The king of Assyria didn't have such trouble. We can be overthrown. 
We can learn all sorts of lessons like that. We can learn that there is comfort and deliverance from the Lord no matter how bleak our circumstances may appear. But here's the lesson I want us to take out of this second chapter right now. Behold, I am against thee. Look at Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. When the Lord says, I am against thee, those are terrible words. You will never stand up against the God of heaven when He says He is against you. And He tells us in the Bible what kind of conduct He'll be with us. And He tells us what kind of conduct He'll be against us. But let's look at a couple of references and remind ourselves of this aspect of the God that we worship. Our wonderful Heavenly Father. He will come against His own with vengeance. As I'm going to show you. But when He comes, it's for our profit. It is to turn us. It is to change us. And it is to prove that we will not be condemned with the world. There were dead church members in the church at Corinth because they abused the Lord's Supper. But they were dead because God had chastened them so that they would not be condemned with the world. It was the evidence of it. But it was a terrible chastening and judgment of its own. Look at these verses with me. Isaiah 63, beginning at verse 7. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which He hath bestowed on them according to His mercies and according to the multitude of His loving kindnesses. For He said, Surely they are My people, children that will not lie. So He was their Savior. In all their affliction, He was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity, He redeemed them. And He bare them and carried them all the days of old. That's pretty good. That's pretty wonderful. About God taking care of His people under the Old Covenant. Next verse. But they rebelled and vexed His Holy Spirit. Therefore He was turned to be their enemy and He fought against them. And brethren, if you have read the Old Testament, you have seen where God would deliver His nation, but then He would turn against them and He would punish them. He sent the Assyrians to besiege Samaria and deport them into all nations. He sent Babylon to take Judah captive for 70 years. And on and on they go. The book of Judges is one conquest after another of the city of, of, the, of the Jews there in the land of Canaan. I want you to remember the words, Behold, I am against thee. Because while God was against Assyria, and we can dip our feet in the blood of those bleeding Assyrians, and justly so, and we should do so, as Psalm 58 tells us, and we do so figuratively by worshiping God from this passage of Scripture. Yet at the same time, we should remember that God can turn to be our enemy, and God can say, Behold, I am against thee. And if He is against you, it doesn't matter what you do with your children. If He's against you, it doesn't matter what you do for your soul. If He, he can give you quail that you pray for so that you think He's blessing you and send leanness into your soul. Amen. 
Psalm 106. You do not want the Lord against you. And so my purpose, as I hope it always is, are we right now ready to humble ourselves and to repent of any thought, any word, any relationship, any action that we are engaged in that is not pleasing to the God of heaven? Because if He turns to be our enemy, it is one terrible thing. And He does it to His own people. Yes, He's the loving God, full of loving kindnesses. Yes, He saved them. Yes, He redeemed them. Yes, He pitied them and carried them all the days of old. But when they rebelled, He turned to be their enemy. They vexed His Holy Spirit. Are you vexing the Holy Spirit? Are you grieving the Spirit of God by living in sin in the least degree? I'm not going to let us off by reading about the Assyrians. I'd be a fool in the Word of God. Yes, God judged the Assyrians. Yes, we can take comfort from that. Yes, we can glorify Him for the way He overthrew great empires. But are we searching our souls and examining ourselves to make sure that there is nothing wrong in our lives? Have we repented of all our sins? Have we put sackcloth and ashes on us for any of our thoughts, motives, intents, words? Anything that we've done or the things we haven't done we should be doing. They rebelled and vexed His Holy Spirit. Therefore, He was turned to be their enemy and He fought against them. I read in the book of Haggai, the the prophet Haggai came and said, You are sowing much and reaping little. You are working hard and not getting ahead because I am blowing against you. If you will go put an emphasis on my house, then I will patch up the holes that are in your bag where your wages are dribbling out. Haggai chapter 1. Because I've called for a drought on the things that you do. I want to tell you, if you're making it financially, it proves nothing. The world's making it financially. More than anyone in here, it proves nothing. Quail came to Israel. They had so much quail, they put it into heaps like snowdrifts. But there was leanness in their soul. We want to repent if that leanness is in our soul and beg God to restore the joy of His salvation to us. Because we vexed His Holy Spirit some way. He'll turn to be our enemy. Let me close in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I'll read verses 30 and 31. 26 through 29 are are mighty good verses describing the fact that when men sin presumptuously and turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ and all the things they know they ought to be doing and do despite to the Spirit of grace and the Gospel that the Spirit of God brings, the judgment is horrible and it's marked worse than anything under the Old Testament. But I want to continue my thought from Nahum, the last verse of chapter 2, Behold, I am against thee. Verse 30, The Apostle Paul in the New Testament wrote, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge His people. It doesn't say the Lord shall judge the Assyrians. It says the Lord shall judge His people. Verse 31, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is not talking about the Assyrians. That is talking about saints of the New Testament turning their back on their religion doing despite 
to the Spirit of grace, counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing, sinning like Corinth did, sinning like Ananias and Sapphira did. They were cut down in the church of God. And the young men came in, wrapped them up, and dropped them in the church cemetery. Brethren, we are dealing with the holy God of the Bible. As He destroyed the Assyrians and their capital city of Nineveh, so He can come after each one of us, even though we are His children, if we live wicked lives in our breast, in our thoughts, in our speech, in our actions. Are you living with the spirit of the humility that the king of Assyria showed when he heard Jonah preaching. Jesus Christ would say that they had repented at the preaching of Jonah, and yet those Jews did not repent at his preaching. Are you repenting in your heart right now? Are you 100% resolved? Whatever the Lord wants, I'll give Him everything. My attitudes, my words, my deeds, I want to match those of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be in perfect agreement with His Spirit as it's revealed in the pages of Scripture. Lord, do not let me compromise on any corner. Do not let me hold out for my sins in any way. He'll turn to be your enemy. I warn you this day that though He's pitied us, redeemed us, and been our Savior, we can vex His Holy Spirit and He can turn to be our enemy. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. May Jesus Christ and God our Father be praised by our study this morning.